The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. We feel at the same time great solicitude for the fate of General Hull's army. His suspension of offensive operations after his bold and confident entry into Canada was much to be deprecated. Should he meet with disaster, the productions of those who pronounce his army incompetent to its object will be fulfilled. And the Secretary of War, in whom already there unfortunately exists no sort of confidence, cannot possibly shield Mr. Madison from the odium which will attend such an event. Within these few days past, I have had the pleasure of meeting with Governor Harrison. His merit cannot be too highly appreciated. He is full of devotion to the cause in which we are embarked. No other man in the United States enjoys more highly the confidence of the Western people as a military character. Governor Harrison has addressed a letter to the Secretary of War, in which he describes several plans of expeditions against the hostile Indians, and which I wish you could see. That which proposes marching an army to Fort Wayne appears to me, under existing circumstances, to be entitled to the preference. An army for this object, to be commanded by Harrison, might be raised with the greatest promptitude. If the president thought proper, he might, I presume, be appointed a major general by brevet, a rank which would be highly beneficial if an expedition of any magnitude is authorized. Speaker of the House, Henry Clay. To Secretary of State, James Monroe. August 12th, 1812. The war may have only been a couple of months old, but as our opening quote suggests, Leaders in Congress were already calling for a change in leadership, both in terms of the military and in the Madison administration. As we shall see in this episode, changes were not far down the road, and 1813 would see new folks in place to right circumstances that had gotten off on the wrong foot. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Joseph of the Turning Tides podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. On his podcast, Joseph takes his audience on a journey to explore crucial turning points in history and their impacts on the cultures and people of the past up to the present day. Thus far in Turning Tides, Joseph has explored pivotal historical moments at locales around the world, including Italy, Puerto Rico, Singapore, and more. Check out the Turning Tides podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found or by going to the website for the podcast at the Turning Tides podcast. That's all one word dot Weebly dot com. I also have a link on the sources section for this episode and will be sharing information about the Turning Tides podcast on my social media around the time of this episode's release. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month 
to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. As discussed in episodes 4.20 and 4.21, by land and by sea, the War of 1812 was not off to a good start. Though he would soon recover, Commodore John Rogers was injured in the first engagement of the war. Meanwhile, Detroit had been taken by the British, and the Northwest lay open to attacks from British and Native forces. In mid-July 1812, it seemed like another disaster was in the making off the coast. Captain Isaac Hall had been given command of the famed USS Constitution, the ship that had defeated the French frigate La Sergent during the Quasi-War and had served as Commodore Edward Prable's flagship during the war with Tripoli. As noted by historian Ian Tull, quote, Isaac Hall had been bred to the sea. Hall had entered the service as sixth lieutenant aboard the ship he now commanded on her maiden cruise in 1798. Among the enlisted men, he was perhaps the most popular captain in the service. He was also, perhaps, the greatest all-round seaman in the Navy, with a genius for ship handling and navigation. Despite a low inventory of supplies at the Washington Navy Yard, repairs and refits on the Constitution were carried out in no small part due to Hull's persistence to prioritize work on his ship, and they set sail on June 19th to proceed to New York City to join up with Commodore Rogers' squadron. Hull had been given instructions, should he meet up with a British ship en route, that, quote, you will be guided in your proceeding by your own judgment, bearing in mind, however, that you are not voluntarily to encounter a force superior to your own. On July 17th, while off the coast of New Jersey, the lookout on the Constitution sighted five ships, which was the number of ships expected to be in Rogers' squadron. Thinking it likely that Rogers had set sail and would be in the vicinity, Hull issued orders designed to bring them closer. Toll notes, quote, As precaution, the drummer tapped out the call to quarters and the crew went to their battle stations. They remained this way overnight as the ships drew ever closer to one another. Remember that word voluntary in Hull's orders. Unfortunately, the dawn brought the revelation that the Constitution had inadvertently, quote, encountered a force superior to their own. Two of the five British ships that the Constitution found themselves faced with were nearly within cannon shot range. Hull and his crew saw on the morning of the 18th that they were dealing with four frigates, including the HMS Belvedere that Commodore Rogers and the USS President had faced off with the month prior, as well as the battleship HMS Africa. Hull immediately issued orders to set sail, but, as noted by Toll, quote, as the sun rose, the breeze abruptly vanished, and it fell a dead calm. The Constitution was left a sitting duck, bobbing in the water. After one of the British frigates issued, quote, a few long-ranging cannon shots that did not hit their mark, Hull issued orders, quote, to lower the boats and take the ship under tow toward Delaware Bay. Seeing the action aboard the Constitution, the British made ready to do the same in pursuit. Meanwhile, Hull made ready to battle, firing the first ranging shot from the Constitution's guns himself. One of the British ships nearly within cannon range, the HMS Shannon, was coming up fast, and the Americans began to grow concerned that their chance of survival 
was dwindling. As they deliberated, one of Hull's lieutenants came up with an idea. Ships sometimes carried out a maneuver called kedging in harbors or inland waterways where they would, quote, run an anchor and long anchor cable ahead in a boat. The anchor was dropped and the cable hauled in by the capstan, thus moving the ship up to the position of the anchor. This wasn't generally done at sea, but desperate times called for desperate measures, and Hull gave the go-ahead. It was hard work, but they carried on during the day, desperately fighting to keep out of cannon range of the British ships who, again, seeing what the Americans were doing, set about imitating the maneuver. Dawn broke on July 19th with the two British frigates gaining ground as a steady, light breeze had come in from the south overnight. Finally, though, the power of the wind grew, and the Constitution, having been recently overhauled, was able to pick up to a speed of 12.5 knots and escape the British. As described by Toll, quote, The three-day chase had been one of the longest and most desperate in the entire history of sail. By saving the Constitution, Hull had averted a capture that might have dealt a devastating blow to the nation's confidence and morale at the outset of the war. The fame of the Constitution, however, was about to get an even greater boost. With the British patrolling the sea lanes leading to New York, Hull used his prerogative to order the Constitution to set sail for Boston. When they arrived on July 27th, rumors abounded in that port city about British naval forces laying in wait off the coast of New England, including, perhaps, the squadron that the Constitution had just faced off against. Hull was determined to remain in Boston just long enough to send reports back to Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton in Washington, as well as refresh his ship's stores. Part of his sense of urgency was the potential that the British may blockade the harbor at any time and trap the Constitution. Part was due to the presence of Captain William Bainbridge at the Boston Navy Yard. While Bainbridge had already been assigned command of the USS Constellation, as the Constellation was still being fitted out at the Washington Navy Yard and Bainbridge was senior to Hull in the officer roles, Hull expected orders to come from Hamilton to turn over command of the Constitution to Bainbridge. Before he had to hand over his ship, Captain Hull intended to put his ship to good use in pursuing the British. Thus, on August 2nd, they set sail, bound for, quote, the English shipping lanes off Halifax and the Gulf of St. Lawrence. After hearing from the Decatur, an American privateer, that the HMS Guerriere was in the area, on the afternoon of August 19th, quote, the lookout on the Constitution caught sight of a big, full-rigged ship on the southern horizon. This was, indeed, the 44-gun Guerriere, which, in reference to the Little Belt Fair discussed in episode 4.16, when a smaller British ship was mistaken for the Guerriere, had painted on its foretop sail, not the Little Belt. Now that war was on, the captain and officers of the Guerriere were in the mood to get revenge for what was seen as a dishonorable attack by the U.S. Navy on the overmatched Little Belt at a time when the two nations had still been at peace. As the Guerriere had been one of the ships in the squadron that had chased down the Constitution a month prior, as noted by Toll, the British captain, quote, had taken a good look at the Constitution. He must have known she was larger and more heavily armed than the Guerriere, and he could not have any doubt that she was well handled. 
yet the option of running from the Constitution never seems to have entered his mind. Thus, the ships engaged in battle, and though some damage was done in the first broadside to the Constitution's rigging, the Guerriere, both in terms of the ship and its crew, sustained much greater injury. The Constitution, meanwhile, earned its famous epithet in the battle. Again from Toll, quote, The Constitution's heavy planks and live oak frame provided good protection to the men who kept their heads down. As one of the Guerrier's 18-pounder balls bounced harmlessly back into the sea, a member of the Constitution's crew exclaimed, Her sides are made of iron. The remark was later widely reported in the press, and the nickname stuck. Old Ironsides. The British captain, however, was determined. He ordered, quote, a boarding party over the rail to carry the American frigate in hand-to-hand combat. It was a brutal battle ahead, but ultimately the Americans triumphed and the Guerriere was left, quote-unquote, a hulk by the time its captain surrendered. When the British captain offered his sword to Hull, he, quote, refused to accept it. And the British captain, quote, complimented Hull on the performance of the Constitution, remarking that the American crew had fought like tigers. As noted by Toll, quote, including those who died of their wounds, American casualties totaled seven killed and seven wounded. The Guerriere had lost 23 killed and 56 wounded. Another casualty of this encounter was the Guerriere itself. The ship was beyond the point of repair to bring it back to port. Thus, the Constitution was brought to a safe distance and, quote, all aboard, including the British captain, turned to watch the incomparably grand and magnificent sight of the British frigate's last moments. The Constitution fired on the ship until, quote, the hull parted in the center by the shock and loaded with such masses of iron and spars reeled, staggered, plunged forward a few feet, and sank out of sight. With that, the Constitution returned to Boston Harbor with their British prisoners of war and news of the first decisive American victory of the war. This was much-needed good news to an already demoralized American war spirit. The surrender of Detroit, as discussed in episode 4.20, not only spurred fears in the northwestern U.S. of native attacks, but also left the entirety of the Northwest, the modern-day Midwest region, vulnerable to attack. Concerned that the federal government was either delayed or potentially incapable of mounting a proper defense, leading citizens in Kentucky, including the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Henry Clay, pushed that state's government to take immediate action. The way it was carried out was, as noted by historian David Curtis Skaggs, in defiance of, quote, the Commonwealth of Kentucky's Constitution and state law. Shortly after news of the surrender of Detroit arrived, on August 20, 1812, Kentucky named Indiana Territorial Governor William Henry Harrison as a major general of the state's militia, quote, and invested him with the command of a relief force, despite the fact that Harrison was not a citizen of Kentucky and thus was ineligible for the post. This did not stop him from taking up the militia commission and being recognized as the head of the Kentucky State Militia. Now, technically, 
Harrison was outranked by a regular Army officer in the region, Brigadier General James Winchester of Tennessee. Winchester, though he had somewhat of a reputation as a fighter of native forces in North Carolina prior to his move further west, was described as, quote, mild, generous, and rich, and was more of a political appointee to this high command than someone with a wealth of military experience. He was also disliked by the militia forces of Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio, who would be called upon for service in the Northwestern Army. Thus, when word came that Fort Wayne was threatened, Winchester acquiesced to Harrison's demand that he should be the one to lead the relief force. Indeed, though Harrison would soon receive a commission as a brigadier general in the regular army and was offered command of the Northwestern Army by Secretary of War William Eustace, Harrison declined the offer, instead insisting that he should receive a commission as major general. This refusal did not mean, however, that Harrison wouldn't continue to command military forces in the Northwest. Instead, he just continued to operate under his commission as a general of the Kentucky militia, and, as noted by historian John R. Eltling, this allowed him to remain, quote, partially detached from Eustace's control. In the West, there was much more confidence in Harrison than in the Secretary of War back in Washington. Again from Elting, quote, A veteran soldier, experienced in frontier warfare, he, i.e. Harrison, understood the problems he faced and the absolute need for careful preparation. An effective leader, he had inspired the West, and Madison and Eustace, to expect a quick, triumphant campaign. Harrison quickly sprang into action and pulled together an army. However, he also had to do a bit of political maneuvering with folks back in Washington. Harrison wrote to Eustace that, quote, It appeared to me necessary that someone should undertake the general direction of affairs here, and I have done it. Should it be considered by the government to have been improper, I shall, I hope, be pardoned for the purity of my motives. As early as January 1812, Harrison had offered his services to the administration to serve in the regular army, making a point of noting how he had served under General Anthony Wayne in the Legion of the United States back in the day. However, in addition to criticism being lodged against him by political enemies in the West, little did Harrison know that there was a leader in Washington advocating against him actually being given command of the force that he was leading de facto. As soon as the War of 1812 began, Secretary of State James Monroe started talking to President Madison about the possibility of securing a field command for himself. As noted by Monroe biographer Tim McGrath, Monroe had already started, quote, making plans to recruit a volunteer force of Virginians and was considering whether he should temporarily resign his post at the State Department. Just like other commanders that we've discussed, including Harrison, who did not relinquish his post as governor of the Indiana Territory while serving as a general in the Kentucky militia, though the territorial secretary, John Gibson, was the one responsible for actually carrying out Harrison's duties while he was away with the army, so too did Monroe not want to completely give up his civilian office in order to take up a military command. The president was initially keen to the idea of Monroe taking command of the Northwestern Army, and wrote to the Secretary of State as such on September 6th. He realized that Winchester was not a viable option, so he was off the table. With Harrison, though, 
he acknowledged his greater experience with military matters than Winchester, as well as his popularity in the West, but questioned if, quote, Harrison, if substituted, would be everything that the public would ask. His military service had been well over a decade prior, and even then, Harrison had only risen to the rank of captain in the regular army. While Monroe, too, had not risen to the rank of general during his military service even further back, Monroe had served under General Washington himself, and since had attained, quote, a more extensive weight of character than Harrison. Madison felt that Monroe, quote, would carry with you the confidence of all, would be the most unexceptional depository of the necessary powers, and be most able to give impulse and direction to the only force now applicable to the object. There was only one problem with this idea. Who would manage the State Department in Monroe's absence? The choice had to be carefully deliberated, as it seems that Madison and Monroe had already reached an agreement that Monroe was to be Madison's successor as president when he left office. They didn't want to put a potential rival to Monroe's nomination in at state, which was being seen as a next-in-line office for those with presidential ambitions. There was one person who they knew would both be a great asset to the administration and would not represent a threat to Monroe's future candidacy, the person who had served as the original U.S. Secretary of State, none other than former President Thomas Jefferson. While this sounds like an outlandish proposal in the modern era, 2023 as of this recording, we have to remember that Madison was still only the fourth president. There was little precedent for what a post-presidential career could look like. Indeed, from the precedent with which they were most familiar, the British government, there was at that point a former prime minister serving in the ministry of a successor. While it's hard to imagine Jefferson accepting the offer, the two Virginians ultimately thought against it before even sending word of it to Monticello because circumstances were changing around them. As summer started giving way to fall, criticism of Secretary of War William Eustis was on the rise in the halls of power, and Monroe was being talked about as a suitable replacement. However, this took inviting Jefferson to join the cabinet off the table as it would be too much given the criticism of the undue influence that Virginia had over the federal government to have Virginians in charge of the state and war departments in the administration of yet another Virginian president. Meanwhile, the idea of giving Monroe a military appointment was also judged infeasible as to satisfy Monroe's ego and give him the authority to effectively prosecute the war in the field. He would have to be given a higher command than the current senior officers of the army, and this would spur discontent and jealousy in the ranks. No, the idea of moving Monroe to the War Department and then finding another to replace him at state was looking increasingly attractive. The problem remained now of how to oust Eustace in the office and make a smooth transition at a time where there was still so much happening on multiple fronts of the war. To start with one of the quieter fronts first, Major General Stephen Van Rensselaer, who we last discussed in episode 4.21, was still struggling with his command and sorting out issues between the regular army officers and the militia forces in the Army of the Center. Finally, in October 1812, 
he was able to launch an attack. It was a disaster, to the point that, on October 20th, Van Rensselaer resigned his command, and Brigadier General Alexander Smythe, Van Rensselaer's chief opponent during his brief tenure of command, took charge of the Army of the Center. Smythe did little better, and by the end of the year, he was gone as well. Indeed, as described by historian Gene Allen Smith, quote, The Niagara Campaign, through a narrow strip of land dominated by the turbulent Niagara River, separating Lakes Erie and Ontario, and dividing Canada and the United States, stagnated into a nasty, brutal tug-of-war, with each side both winning and losing, but with neither side gaining a decisive advantage. Indeed, there were only two notable things about the Niagara Campaign of 1812. One was the participation of a lieutenant colonel named Winfield Scott. You'll want to remember that name, dear listener. We'll be hearing more from this young army officer who was captured after surrendering at the disastrous Battle of Queenston Heights. The other event during this campaign that would have an impact on the war is the death of the British Major General Isaac Brock in that same battle at Queenston Heights. In the early days of the war, as we saw in episode 4.20 with the fall of Detroit, Brock had proven himself capable of meeting the American threat. Further, he had cultivated the trust and partnership of the Shawnee Chief Tecumseh, and together, in six weeks' time, they had managed to eliminate, quote, every American post on the upper Great Lakes west of Cleveland, and were even starting to threaten the Indiana territorial capital of Vincennes, as well as settlements in northeastern Ohio. As noted by Skaggs, Brock planned an offensive operation both to keep the native forces on the side of the British as they were agitating for action against the Americans and needed to see results, as well as the fact that taking the battle to them would, quote, divert the Americans from concentrating on the strategic lifeline of Upper Canada, namely the Great Lakes Basin leading into the St. Lawrence River. In the first few months of the conflict, it was starting to look like the British and native forces combined might wipe out the American presence in a considerable portion of the Old Northwest. Then, Brock went to the Niagara frontier. On October 13, 1812, Brock was, quote, slain at the front of his men as he tried to capture an enemy position. Not only did the British lose a capable general, but Tecumseh and his confederation lost one of the few British officers that they could trust and that had tried to understand their motivation and approach them with respect. What had been a strong partnership would falter in future campaigns. Despite the Army's issues in the latter half of 1812, there were a couple of important developments in the Niagara area when it came to the Navy. Captain Isaac Chauncey had been empowered as a Commodore to develop, quote, squadrons on Lakes Ontario and Erie. These ships would have to be built on site, and thus Chauncey empowered Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott to gather information from General Van Rensselaer about where the best site would be for a naval yard on Lake Erie, which Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton had prioritized in his orders to Chauncey. Gathering information from the general and others, Elliott ultimately recommended a site known as Black Rock, which was, quote, a few miles down the Niagara River from the eastern end of the lake. 
As the plan was predicated on the Army of the Center successfully invading Canada by crossing the Niagara River and taking Fort Erie, which, as we already know, didn't happen, it grew ever more doubtful that the site could be effectively developed as a naval yard. But the Black Rock Plan met its final death when word arrived from Washington, D.C. A, quote, merchant captain with considerable knowledge of the Upper Lakes had met with President Madison and Secretary Hamilton back in the nation's capital and convinced them that Presque Isle Bay in Erie, Pennsylvania, was the ideal spot for the naval yard on Lake Erie. Conveniently, Erie, Pennsylvania, was also the merchant captain's home, and he left, quote, warranted a sailing master in the Navy and authorized to begin construction at Presque Isle. Elliot had his doubts, but finally conceded the battle. By that point, however, Elliot had obtained some fame and a couple of ships of his own. While waiting for word of the next steps in establishing the naval yard at Black Rock, Lieutenant Elliot got word of two British ships that were anchored not far away on the Niagara River. With about a hundred men, Elliot took the two ships on the night of October 9th and floated them toward Black Rock. When the British artillery ashore realized what was happening, they opened fire and ran one ship aground, which the Americans burnt, to avoid it being recaptured by the British. The other ship, though, joined the merchant ships that Elliot had managed to gather at Black Rock. It was a daring raid, and, as noted by historians David Curtis Skaggs and Gerard T. Altloff, quote, For the first time, the British took notice of the U.S. Navy on the lakes. Though the government back in Washington had upgraded the importance they assigned to naval operations on the Great Lakes from an afterthought to actually showing some concern about it, it was still painfully clear from orders issued by Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton in late 1812 that they were out of touch with the needs on the ground. Even more so than ships, men were desperately needed to carry out operations on the Great Lakes and the Navy could ill afford to be picky in their recruitment. Despite that, in late November, Hamilton, quote, instructed commanders to give the recruiting officer orders to enter none but white, able-bodied citizens. Congress was no better, as they would back up this command a few months later when, in March 1813, they, quote, passed an act prohibiting the employment of any persons of color aboard any public ship. As noted by historian Gene Allen Smith, though, quote, American naval officers circumvented regulations and listed men on warships muster rolls according to their maritime talent rather than by the color of their skin. Thus, black sailors would be part of the ranks of the enlisted to challenge British naval supremacy on the lakes. If you're starting to feel like everything is a swirling mess with this war effort thus far, dear listener, just know that you're not alone, as that was how many contemporaries were feeling. Turning back to the turbulent West, the Madison administration finally decided in mid-September that Harrison should command U.S. forces in that front. However, though orders were sent by Secretary of War Eustace to Harrison, along with Ohio Governor Return J. Miggs and Kentucky Governor Isaac Shelby, General Winchester had not been informed and wrote back to the War Department questioning whether someone with a general's commission from a state militia could command federal troops. With this standoff in the West, military operations came 
to a standstill. Madison and his administration apparently had similar concerns to Winchester and, despite his earlier refusal, tried to push through the Senate a commission for Harrison as a brigadier general in the U.S. Army. The Senate, however, expressed its concerns about awarding a military commission to Harrison while he was still the territorial governor of Indiana. They were finally able to get the commission approved on December 2nd, but when word was sent to Harrison, he refused for a bit to accept it, instead continuing to command under the authority of his commission as Major General of the Kentucky State Militia. Harrison's supporters in Kentucky and Ohio thought that he was holding off for a major generalship in the U.S. Army and resolved to petition President Madison to award Harrison that higher rank. As 1812 drew to a close, leaders in Washington began to question just what had been accomplished in the first six months of the war and where the problem lay. Many felt the answer was clearly the people heading the Navy and War Departments. President Madison had been reluctant to rock the boat while his re-election was still in question, but as soon as it became clear that he would be the commander-in-chief prosecuting the war in 1813, it was clear that the time had come to deal with the issue, especially as Congress was threatening to withhold needed military appropriations unless changes were made. First up was Secretary of War William Eustace. Eustace may not have been the best administrator, but it seems that he could at least read a room and realize that, one way or another, his tenure as head of the War Department was nearly up. Thus, on December 3rd, he took matters into his own hands and sent the President the following message. Quote, The Constitution of the War Department, as well as that of the military force, rendered the duties of the Secretary of that department necessarily arduous during a time of peace. When war was declared, the augmentation of duty, the great responsibility attached to the department, together with the belief that some other citizen might be selected, possessing greater military knowledge and commanding in a higher degree the public confidence, induced me to propose to retire from office. Eustace stuck around long enough to ensure a smooth transition to James Monroe, who was being named temporarily to head the War Department, until Madison could make a decision on a permanent Secretary of War. But by the end of January 1813, Eustace was on the road, headed back home to Boston. With one of his embattled cabinet members dealt with, President Madison was able to turn his attention to Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton. Madison met with him on December 28, 1812, to discuss, quote, complaints about Hamilton's management of the Navy Department. That was an understatement. A congressional committee of investigation was at that point gathering evidence of the, quote, careless financial administration at the Navy office. As noted by historian Ian Toll, Hamilton, quote, had no prior experience in outfitting ships or overseeing the complex accounts of a large maritime organization. Bookkeeping standards declined, chaos reigned in the Navy Department, Anti-navalist Republicans triumphantly pointed out that the administration could not say how vast sums had been spent. After their initial meeting, Madison and Hamilton met again the next day, and the president informed his secretary that he had received word that Congress would not approve a much-needed naval appropriation unless 
Hamilton was removed from office. The secretary tried to defend his conduct, but on December 30th, he threw in the towel. His letter read as follows, quote, Having devoted unremittedly more than 30 years of my life to public service in various situations, in all of which I feel a consciousness of having done my duty according to my best judgment and understanding, and being now about to withdraw from the office of the Secretary of the Navy with which you honored me, permit me to ask you whether, in your opinion, there has been anything in the course of my conduct in that station reprehensible. Your goodness of heart, sir, will induce you, as I trust, readily to excuse this intrusion when you reflect that if this inquiry is answered as my conscience leads me to expect it will be, you will put me in possession of what may be a valuable legacy to my children. Madison would oblige Hamilton with a letter professing, quote, your patriotic merits and private virtues and Hamilton's, quote, unimpeachable integrity. But this would do little to resuscitate Paul Hamilton's reputation in history, as we discussed in Hamilton's episode of the Seat at the Table special series. As noted by historian Stephen Rausch, quote, the year 1812 and the early months of 1813 had been bitterly disappointing. Prospects for victory, so deceptively bright in the heady days following the declaration of war in June 1812, looked dim. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to the government in Washington, British commanders were plotting new campaigns against the United States. As described by Gene Allen Smith, quote, In October 1812, only five months after the United States had declared war, Sir John Borlase Warren, then British commander of the North American Squadron, proposed an operation against New Orleans to divert the American attack against Canada. Instead, Earl Bathurst, Secretary of State for War and Colonies, instructed commanders to conduct diversionary raids against the American coast, and the orders demanded that British raiding parties destroy all public property within their reach. Beyond just physical property, Bathurst had another aim in mind with the raids. Quote, Bathurst broadened the scope of the war, suggesting that British forces could liberate American slaves and enlist them in the British Black Corps in the Caribbean, which would permit the reallocation of other forces to North America for the war against the United States. If American enslavers were concerned before, as 1812 gave way to 1813, British military policy for the upcoming campaign season now included a strategy to turn those they enslaved against them, albeit indirectly. We'll have to see how the strategy develops in future episodes, for our time together is drawing to a close. Thanks so much again to Joseph of the Turning Tides podcast for providing the opening quote for this episode. And be sure to check out the Turning Tides podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found once you're done with this episode. Special thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the folks at the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hull's Victory as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand for our intro and outro music. 
You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. Links to the websites for all these folks, as well as sources used for this episode, past episodes of the podcast, links to more information about all of the U.S. presidents, and much more can be found at the website, which is presidenciespodcast.com. If you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. I'm also available on social media. I'm on Mastodon, Post, and Facebook as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Last, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. It's been a wild ride thus far as we progress through the history of Madison's presidency. And believe you me, it gets even bumpier from here. In our next episode, we'll head out west to explore what's happening in the Spanish colonial province just to the west of Louisiana in an episode I'd like to call the First Texas Revolution. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.